Hi everyone, it's Vicki Basilica from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists. And I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. All right, thanks to everybody for, for joining another of our great debates. My name is Ian Hollis. I am a uh, clinical specialist in cardiac surgery and advanced heart failure at, UN, at UNC Medical Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I take care of ECMO patients uh, fairly frequently in my practice. We're going to frame today's presentation, this pro-con debate uh, that we're going to treat you to, um, around some characteristics of a couple of different agents. And so we're going to talk about bivalirudin and unfractionated heparin. Um, and I have been tasked with uh, selling you on the idea that bivalirudin is the superior agent, which um, I think you'll see is actually a pretty easy job. Um, and so we're going to go through the therapeutic effect of the agents. We're going to talk about ease of monitoring, avoiding adverse effects, and then reversibility. So as many of you know, bivalirudin is a direct thrombin inhibitor, and so it binds um, thrombin or factor two, um, both clot bound and circulating. Um, so it's a pretty simple mechanism of action as compared to heparin, which is um, frankly pretty complicated, um, binds to antithrombin threes. So you have to have a, a reasonable amount of circulating antithrombin three, binds to a variety of clotting factors, um, but it also um, sticks to a lot of cell surfaces, vascular wall, macrophages, circulating proteins, which makes it a little bit uh, unpredictable. The half-life uh, and clearance is an advantage to bivalirudin as well. Um, in patients with normal renal function, you've got a nice short 25 minutes, whereas with heparin, um, it varies a lot based on the characteristics of uh, and the chain length of the heparin that you have in the bag could be anywhere from 30 minutes to 120 minutes. So that's a little messy as well. Um, and of course, bivalirudin um, is a manufactured product, whereas heparin, um, you're going to get a bag of varying chain lengths and sizes. And so um, it's, a, it's a mixed bag, quite literally, uh, in terms of the effect that you're going to get from the agent. So some definite advantages for bivalv. Um, in terms of predictability, you know, when we're trying to anticoagulate an ECMO patient, um, it's sort of a narrow therapeutic drug type of situation. We want to avoid bleeding, but obviously minimize clotting. So in this study from Pieri et al., they took 20 ECMO patients and split them pretty evenly between unfractionated heparin and bivalirudin. And the goal was basically to just see who could get to therapeutic and stay there and how many dose adjustments were necessary. And so what you see um, in looking at the primary endpoint, the number of dose corrections required in the unfractionated heparin group was numerically greater than bivalirudin, although not statistically significant. However, if you look at APTT variations greater than 20%, uh, as any of you who have ever used unfractionated heparin will know, um, it's highly variable, it's all over the place, and so the rate was more than um, twice as high in the unfractionated heparin group. So bival is more likely to get you therapeutic and keep you there safely. With that said, I'm going to present to you some data that was generated by um, my pro-con debater, Mr. Ted Berry. Um, they looked at unfractionated heparin as compared to bivalirudin at their institution in both VA and VB ECMO. And I have uh, carefully selected some important outcomes. Um, time, in time not in therapeutic range was significantly greater in the unfractionated heparin group. 
are nearly significantly greater. Time to the therapeutic APTT, if the patient was not already therapeutic, was much longer in the unfractionated heparin group. And over a period of several days, the time in therapeutic range was much greater in the bivalirudin group. And so, and I will quote my co-debater that these results suggest that bivalirudin is in fact a viable alternative to heparin for anticoagulation in ECMO. So these are, these are his words, not mine. More on predictable therapeutic effect. If you use heparin for ECMO at your institution, like many of you do, you've had the joy of arguing about antithrombin-3 levels, antithrombin-3 replacement, uh, and the need to um, check AT3 levels repeatedly, uh, which is um, pretty much a nightmare. So heparin resistance is really common in patients on ECMO because many critically ill patients do have antithrombin-3 deficiency. How much antithrombin-3 you need for heparin to work is debatable. There are reference ranges in normal humans. Um, you can replete antithrombin-3 with um, a synthetic product, which is extremely expensive, uh, or you can use FFP, although FFP presents challenges in terms of volume overload, transfusion-related injuries, uh, and things like that. And it's, it's obviously a blood product too, so it can sensitize patients. So in a survey of ECLS centers, um, we found that the goal AT3 level is all over the map, from 30 to 120%. Some ch centers check it all the time, some centers check it occasionally, and some never check it. And so if you're using heparin for your ECMO, you're going to be using antithrombin-3, and you're going to end up in a scenario like this bitmoji in the lower left, which is me with Ted's cat, Ted's cat fin, um, just making it rain uh, with AT3, and uh, your bosses are not going to appreciate that. So with that said, I think we can agree that bivalirudin has the more predictable therapeutic effect far and away over unfractionated heparin. So let's talk about monitoring. The 2014 ELSO anticoagulation guidelines for ECMO go through all the different ways that you can monitor anticoagulants, um, including activated clotting time, anti-factor 10A levels specific to heparin, activated partial thromboplastin time. And so, you know, ultimately, all different centers are, are left to decide which of these monitoring modalities they want to use when they use heparin. And you're going to end up looking like uh, this meme down in the lower right. As you can see on the left, this is straight from the EC ELSO guidelines. Ultimately, every ECLS program will have to come up with their own approach to monitoring the anticoagulant effect. Okay, great. Thanks for nothing. So it's easier if you just stick with bivalirudin where you have an APTT at one and a half to two and a half times the upper limit of normal. No debating, no arguing, no switching between modalities, no using multiple modalities, um, no fuss, no muss. So much easier to monitor bivalirudin, well-established. Avoidance of adverse effects. Well, I decided to bring in some data from uh, a, a different clinical setting uh, where bivalirudin and unfractionated heparin are frequently compared. And so this is acute coronary syndrome. Um, with PCI. And so, as you can see, I've selected a few large controlled studies that compare bleeding rates in bivo with bivalirudin to unfractionated heparin. And as you can see, across the board, it is pretty commonly known that if you use bivalirudin, you're likely to experience less bleeding in a comparable patient population. And so, it is reasonable to assume um, that this predictability uh, and ease of monitoring those things are translating to less bleeding. Uh, and could translate in our ECMO patients. And then, of course, there's HIT, which 
is named after heparin because heparin causes it. And so the incidence of HIT in ECMO patients is actually much lower than you'd think. But thrombocytopenia that looks like HIT, uh, if you have a patient on ECMO, many of whom lose kidney function and end up on CRT, many need an impellate to vent their left ventricle and or a balloon pump, the incidence of thrombocytopenia that looks like HIT in this situation is actually 143%. And so uh, if you ever cared for these patients, after about three to four days, they're going to have platelets of about 50 to 60, and everybody's going to want to order a HIT panel. And so if you use bivalirudin right up front, you can just avoid that conversation because the actual incidence of HIT uh, tends to be very low. So avoiding adverse effects in terms of bleeding and HIT, big advantage for bivalirudin, far and away. Reversibility. So one of the debates is if a patient does bleed, how are we going to reverse it? Well, we don't have a targeted reversal agent for bivalirudin, but we do have a couple of studies that show um, that, you know, because many of these patients are on renal replacement therapy, um, the dosing requirement in patients on CVV goes up because of the renal clearance component of the drug. And so I would argue if your patient is on CRRT, which many times is the case, um, one of the ways to get rid of the drug is to just turn up the filtration rate. Um, otherwise, the relatively short half-life uh, and the proteolytic clearance that occurs within the blood means that you're less likely to need a reversal agent anyway. So this is not as big of an issue with a drug that's less likely to cause bleeding. I mean, sure, there's protamine for heparin. Sure, that's cheap and easy. But I'm going to call this a tie and say that it's, it's really no different between agents. And so your key takeaways are, you know, the pharmacodynamics and kinetics of bivalirudin lead to a much more predictable clinical response than heparin. Um, monitoring of bivalirudin is remarkably easy. Um, you, can, you don't have to argue about it with your team. It doesn't change day over day. Bivalirudin has been shown to be associated with less bleeding in comparable clinical settings, and you're never going to have to have a HIT discussion or send HIT panels. And while bivalve has no specific antidote, it does have a short half-life and it's easily removed with CRRT. And so with that, I just want to conclude with one final point. You know, 2020 has been a tough year for all of us. And frankly, we deserve something nice. So I would encourage all of you to go out and treat yourself to a nice vial of bivalirudin. Spend a little money. We deserve it. You know, it's been a tough year. Get some of that top shelf anticoagulation and, and enjoy that in the comforts of your own home. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to my, uh, my debater, uh, Ted Berry. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Hollis. I appreciate that uh, succinct um, summary of why you think bival is uh, superior to heparin. Um, I've been tasked with the, uh, the opposite of kind of showing everyone that heparin is a, a worthy comparator. And to be honest, uh, I hope to show everyone that it is the standard of care and it should remain that way. And bivalrudin is really meant for, um, you know, as Dr. Hollis mentioned, opportunities where you want to specifically treat yourself rather than treating yourself all the time with ECMO, which could be very, uh, very costly and potentially bankrupt your ECMO center uh, if you're high volume as well. Um, but with that said, my name is Ted Berry. Uh, I practice with uh, the Advanced Heart Failure Team uh, at the University of Wisconsin, take care of a lot of patients on uh, primarily VA ECMO. All right, so let's get the party started here. So heparin, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We all know what heparin is. It's been around since, you know, the, uh, 
sands of uh, time have uh, been whirling around. It's it's as old as dirt. And everyone knows how to use it. Naturally occurring um, requires antithrombin three, which is something that's noteworthy. <clears throat> in ECMO patients as well to work. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but overall, heparin is something that we're all familiar with that we use on a day in and day out basis in our cardiovascular uh, patients. Um, and something that uh, more than likely is probably the best option in, in our ECMO patient population. So as I was alluding to, heparin is extremely common. And I've only studied a few um, studies here, but really when you look at a lot of registry data, so PRADI, uh, Esper and then Bembea as well at varying time points, 2020, 2017, 2013, surveyed ECMO centers across the world. Um, and as you can see, nearly all of them were reporting using unfractionated heparin as their primary anticoagulant, not a backup to bivalve, but as the primary anticoagulant. So I guess you'd have to sit there and scratch your head and ask yourself, is there a reason why everyone is using heparin and not bivalve? Hmm. I wonder. Let's dig into it a little bit more. Heparin resistance. So that's one thing that comes up a lot of the time with heparin. Oh, you know, the patient's going to have heparin resistance. They're really sick. They're critically ill. Coming back to antithrombin-3. What is heparin resistance? There's a lot of different definitions of it, uh, different ways that different providers um, and institutions manage it and how they define it ultimately. There's no standard definition ultimately. Is it, you know, two APTTs or anti-10As out of range, three of them where you can't get someone therapeutic, four, five, 24 hours, 48 hours, no one really knows. No one can put a timestamp on it. Um, ultimately though, what you have to remember is that all of the data we have out there so far, even the study that we uh, came up with when I was at the Minneapolis Heart Institute, it showed no difference ultimately in, in clinical outcomes between those treated with heparin and DTIs. Bival is a potentially viable alternative is it a superior alternative? The data would not suggest that so far. Um, talking a little bit about antithrombin-3, this is kind of one point I may concede to my opponent. If you do have a patient that is um, uh, running low with their AT3 levels and you're measuring that, um, potentially using uh, a direct thrombin inhibitor may be prudent in those moments as opposed to using um, uh, heparin with AT3, just given the high cost of AT3 and almost chronic supplementation you're going to be doing on a daily basis with that. With that said, there are still some times when, when heparin would probably be the, the drug of choice, um, particularly if you have someone that you're extremely worried about bleeding with and that you need to have a reversal agent available immediately. So that is one point I will give, uh, will give my opponent potentially is with AT3 deficiency. Let's get into monitoring though. So the liter literature, even the own literature that I've published would undi undeniably suggest greater fluctuations with, with heparin than you're gonna get with bivalve. But again, I would come back to the point that there's never been any meaningful clinical difference that's been shown with this. So yes, we may have to monitor a little bit more frequently, but let's just think about this. Nurses or perfusionists, they're one-to-one -one with these patients. They're in there all the time anyways. They're drawing off of central lines. They're not poking these patients for these draws. We're not doing peripheral sticks. So is it really that much more to ask for a few more lab draws during the day, potentially while we get that patient into range? Eh, I don't think it's that big of an ask. Um, and ultimately when it comes back to clinical, meaningful clinical differences, there's really nothing that anyone can point their fingers to um, when we're talking about heparin versus bivalve other than anecdotal um, institutional experiences. 
Uh, getting back to bleeding, clean up on aisle three. I think I just heard that overhead uh, for one of my bivalve patients. Um, so simply put, bleeding happens quite frequently in ECMO patients, whether it's internally, so you know, RP or retroperitoneal bleeds, uh, bleeding, bleeding at the cannula site, uh, uh, lots of oozing and so forth that requires packing. Um, it's not uncommon to have bleeding in ECMO patients. Actually, it's, it's quite the norm. Um, but bivalrudin, as Dr. Hollis mentioned, it has no reversal agents. So what are you going to do if you get yourself caught in a sticky situation? You can give them fresh frozen plasma. You can obviously reverse with um, <clears throat> other uh, uh, blood products as well. But ultimately, if you need something quickly and in a GIF, you're kind of out of luck, unfortunately, with bivalrudin. Um, not to mention the fact that if you have someone with bad kidneys as well, good luck. It's going to be hanging out for a long time, potentially even with CRRT running. So with heparin, it's really simple. Just go grab some protamine out of the acidose and give it, problems fixed. So HIT, we talked about HIT a little bit as well. Not going to deny that heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is a major concern for any patient, uh, yet alone a, a, an ECMO patient. That is just one potential event uh, away from kind of tipping them over the edge in terms of um, a worse, worse outcome. Um, with that said, there's a lot of reasons, as Dr. Hollis mentioned, for thrombocytopenia in these people. So critical illness, different drugs they're on. So when we think about Zosin, um, a lot of these folks are on broad spectrum antibiotics. Um, and then also when we think about mechanical consumption with CRT, balloon pumps, impellas that are getting put in now as well with uh, ECMO patients, there's a lot of reasons for these patients to be thrombocytopenic. But what we've seen so far really is when we get HIT testing done on these folks, it's very rare that anyone actually has true serotonin uh, uh, confirmed HIT. So, you know, there's, there's an inherent risk anytime you're going to test someone for HIT anyways, that you're going to get a false positive and then you're going to have to go chasing after that. Um, but what we've seen really is that in the ECMO population, it's really no different than the general population for the most part in terms of actual hit SRA confirmed hit cases. So that shouldn't really be a reason that we, we need to avoid uh, heparin, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess I should say. Dollars and cents, look at that guy, he looks happy. You know why? Because his institution uses heparin first line. So let's just look at a little scenario here. We've got a five-day ECMO run, standard 80 kilo patient, probably not in Wisconsin, maybe not even in North Carolina either. I hear the barbecue is pretty good down there. Um, but let's just assume there's no complications. AT3 levels are normal. It's got normal kidneys, normal, normal liver. This is probably a, a stretch of a scenario, um, to be honest, for an ECMO patient, but let's just, let's just kind of roll with it. And then also constant rate of anticoag. So this guy's on this for five days, this kind of standard dosing heparin and bival. And these are just general prices. Obviously, institutions will be able to negotiate different pricing, um, potentially, which may, may make this look different. But I think the point is there nonetheless, that heparin is uh, not even the same, uh, same stratosphere as bival in terms of cost. Um, at the same time, you could potentially argue, and I would also uh, you know, validate this, that $6,000 in the scheme of an ECMO admission probably isn't, you know, it's a, it's a drop in the bucket. Um, but at the same time, cost is of the essence, especially now in the times of COVID and um, uh, dealing with budgetary concerns related to that and so forth, that we really need to be prudent. And we should always be prudent with medication costs, especially when we're talking about medications that really have no difference in clinical, uh, clinical outcomes differences as well. Um, so just don't forget, and I, I'm sure many of you already remember or knew this, but heparin is just cheaper. It's cheaper and it does just as good of a job.
Oh, what's this? Oh, a paper that was put out by one of the leading, um, uh, one of the leading researchers in ECMO, uh, Mary, uh, Marco Renucci, uh, talking a little bit about what happens to bivalent bi people, especially that are on VA ECMO, where we've got um, uh, blood pooling inside of the left ventricle. It actually breaks down, it rapidly metabolizes um, inside of there, which can lead to clot formation happening um, within the left ventricle um, in, in the intracardiac space. That's not good. I don't want to get a clot. Um, and I don't want to get a clot in the, whether it's in the, uh, the actual uh, circuit or it's in the patient. Clot, no matter what, is not good for these folks. Now, again, I will concede a point. We've gotten better with managing ECMO patients. We're using um, impella devices and other ways of offloading or unloading the, the left ventricle. So this probably isn't as much of a concern, but if you're not doing that, it's something that you have to think about with bivalve rudin as well. You have an inherently or a theoretical, a theoretically greater risk of potential clot formation happening with inside of the ventricle. So to use my opponent's chart against him, let's just go back and, and ask ourselves, predictable therapeutic effect? Well, like we talked about, bivalve rudin might get you into range quicker, but it doesn't really mean much. Ease of monitoring? Same thing, you might do a little bit less monitoring with bival, but again, are you really are you really gaining anything with bival other than just bankrupting your institution? Probably not. Um, in terms of avoidance of adverse effects, like we looked uh, talked about, if you have a patient that's bleeding that you need to reverse immediately or bring them down the whatever you're doing with them, there's nothing you can do with bival other than shut the drip off and load them with blood products, which probably isn't going to be helpful in the moment either. Reversibility, uh, just touchdown and then cost. Um, probably a win for heparin as well, right? We just looked at the, the cost slide a couple slides back. It's, they're not even in the same, same dimension as one another cost-wise. And that was just a five-day ECMO run. I think we could both uh, cite specific patients that have been on ECMO for weeks to I've had patients on ECMO for months. Um, so it's just not a cheap option. And once you go down the bivalve route, it's really hard to switch back to heparin and convince people that heparin's the right move later on. So key takeaways um, from my portion of the presentation is that unfractionated heparin is the most utilized anticoagulant uh, in ECMO worldwide. And again, ask yourself why that is. While it does have potential downsides, including heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, heparin offers a sim similar clinical profile um, at a fraction of the price of bival. And direct thrombin inhibitors offer a cost advantage um, if uh, antithrombin-3 is required and, and is a clear choice in a patient with established hit. So that is one thing I will concede to my opponent, but hopefully after, um, Watching this debate, you're able to kind of draw your own conclusions from it uh, and decide what is ultimately best for your center. So uh, Dr. Hollis and I would like to thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. It's features and content like this that make the ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content.